Well, this morning in our message, we step into one man's home. More specifically, we step into his estate. This is a man who has fathered two sons. You're going to find these sons to be quite different, and you'll find these sons to be quite similar. Most of all, we're going to meet this father, a father who is unchanging toward both sons. He's a father who's ready to forgive, ready to receive sinners, and ready to rejoice. This morning's message is a story often called the parable of the prodigal son. It comes from Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. Jesus tells this tale. It's both sentimental and heartwarming. All the while, it is also quite convicting and sobering. Well, to begin, we need to set the scene for this parable. And we need to do that by looking at the first two verses of that chapter, Luke 15. Luke records a scene from the life of Jesus. Now, while the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near Jesus to listen to him, both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. The Pharisees and the scribes had a problem. It's important to note that they were the spiritual people of the day, the religious elite, we might say, and they could not stand that Jesus welcomed sinners. It's disgusting, dirty, depraved. So they're complaining, Jesus, you are way too close to sinners. A part of this comes from cultural tradition. This is table fellowship. When you dine with someone in this time, it means something. It's more than just a dinner. It's close association. So here's this Jewish rabbi, this Jesus, coming along and eating with sinners. And in response to this, Jesus tells three parables, three stories. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, to say it one way. It's Jesus taking everyday concepts of the time and using them to tell a story. But it's no ordinary story, the parable. It's a story that points to bigger things, to heavenly things, to spiritual things. So when these Pharisees grumbled, Jesus told first the parable of the lost sheep, then the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. All three of these parables are working together. That's important to note as we interpret any of them. Each one in some way is dependent or interdependent upon the others. In other words, we wouldn't slice off just one parable and interpret it apart from the other two, not in the context, not in this passage. So taken together, they do have a main idea. Every parable has one. All three have one. God loves sinners and rejoices at their repentance. That will be the driving idea of our passage this morning. Our parable is the third of the three parables. And by this time, by the third parable, the stakes are raised. In the parable of the lost sheep, it's a celebration. When one is found, it's one in 
100. In the parable of the lost coin, it's a celebration when one is found. It's one in 10. And in the parable of the lost son, there's a celebration when the lost is found. It's one in two. Our parable is a parable of a deliberate, intentional, willful walk away from the Father by His Son. And compared to coins and sheep, coins go missing all the time, and sheep, well, they're just experts at getting lost. But Jesus speaks of a Son, the most valuable of all. And He teaches of the joy of God when the ungodly repent. Luke chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus begins, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey to a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. I want to begin first with this individual, this younger son, often known as the prodigal son. And the account begins with a shocking request. In verse 12, he asks for his share of the estate. Now, this is highly unusual. This is definitely inappropriate, and this might even be illegal. You see, an estate went to the sons of a father after the father died, not before. It's like an inheritance. Once he's passed, that inheritance goes to those behind him. With that said, don't miss the message then that this son is sending his father. Essentially, he's saying to him, you know, dad, I see your death is on the horizon. You know, you don't get around like you used to. Do you really have that much time left, Dad? What he's saying to his dad is, Dad, I want your stuff, not you. It's a child saying to a father that I want what you can do for me. I just don't want you. Well, the father grants the request. Way back in Deuteronomy chapter 21, there's instructions on how Jews ought to handle these matters. The older son is to receive two-thirds of the property. The younger son is to receive one-third. For the purpose of this parable, Jesus divides it 
He's driving at something here. Well, for the younger son, this is wonderful, right? Now the son can take that money and invest his share in responsible stocks. He can now bless his father with gifts of affection. No. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and he went on a journey and he squandered his estate. He gathered, he journeyed, he squandered. That verse says that he gathered everything together outside the Bible. When that verbiage is used, it indicates a a conversion. It's taking something and cashing it out. It's walking away with cash. This means then that the father witnesses the son only days after giving him his share, taking that estate and cashing it in for money, auctioning off his stuff. You know, it's one thing to give him this estate portion way earlier. It's quite another to see it sold off before his very eyes, before he's died. It's almost as though the son leaves no trace. There's no tie left. There's no reason to go back home. And he journeys to a distant country, money in hand. He's leaving the land. We should note, for those in earshot of Jesus on the day that he told this for a Jewish audience, this is a huge deal. You don't leave the land. This is called the promised land. This is where God plants us. This is what God gave us. People who leave the land, they're called exiles. In the Old Testament, those who left the land were dispersed. They're under divine punishment. It's almost ominous that he would leave his country. He squanders his money. In other words, he wastes it. He doesn't lose his money by some freak accident. It's not as though his bank failed or the market tanked. No, he wasted his money. Later in the parable, his brother's going to point to immorality. He devoured your wealth with prostitutes, he will say. The father himself will describe him as dead and lost. And things grow worse from here. He has not yet hit the rock bottom that often attends rebellion. After he went broke, what happened next? A severe famine occurred. Now he had no money, he had no food. And in his hunger, in an effort to simply survive, he hires himself out and he does it to feed pigs. This, by the way, is absolutely detestable to a faithful Jew. One Bible dictionary says it this way, quote, strict Jews will not even mention swine by name but would always substitute the term, quote, the abomination. Israelites considered themselves polluted if they were even touched by a swine's bristle, one of those nasty hairs of a fat hog. So for him, starvation sets in. In verse 14, he begins to be impoverished. In verse 16, no one is giving anything to him. In verse 17, I am dying here with hunger. Starvation, by the way, causes all kinds of problems in the human body. There's a a reduced energy. There's a reduced sleep. Dizziness and headaches and hair loss occur. 
I can only imagine that the blazing sun of the Middle East is creating some kind of blinding hypersensitivity to light. Imagine how gnawing the grunting of the swine would be as your hearing elevated and increased. He's moodier, he's more irritable, he's completely preoccupied with food, is probably all that he thinks about. To watch every pod devoured by those pigs and to think, oh, that only my stomach could be that full. He's starving, and the pigs aren't. And while in this state, while in this place, he comes to his senses. Did the citizens of this country help him? No. Did he help himself? No. And as his life comes crashing to the bottom, the light comes on. And I want to pause at this point in the narrative to simply say, praise God for rock bottom. Personally identify with this man. And the Lord did a work in my life in how he brought me to faith through rock bottom. Because I went to a distant country and I squandered my life walking away from God. But what God does is he uses rock bottom to deliver grace, to bring people to their senses. Suffering has a way of clearing the fog. Hardship has a way of waking men from their slumber. It's through such things that God redeems people. To say it another way, no one comes to faith by winning the lottery. In fact, the successes in this life and the victories, they often serve to keep people just outside the kingdom. To remain self-sufficient, inflating pride, and keeping them lost. And as long as we're able to rely on our own resources, repentance is very difficult to attain. God uses sin to redeem. God has a purpose for sin. And this is good news for some of us this morning who have family members or friends who are living in squalor. God is able to redeem them through rock bottom, through the dirt of the pigsty. I mean, we may know people that are stuck in that sty with the swine this morning. God can deliver them. God excels. He's an expert at bringing people to life. He uses this squalor to bring us to our senses. He, he did that with this prodigal. In verses 18 and 19, the young son, he, he's basically repenting. He's turning from that sin. Remember, this is going to follow the other parables. It's the third of three. We mentioned that. Back in verse 7, repentance there is a prominent feature. Back in verse 10, repentance is producing joy anew. We're not surprised to find the theme of repentance in this parable also. And this young son, he gives us good instruction on repentance. There's something for us to learn here. We have some direction from him. Notice first that he gets his order right. It's God first, then his father. In verse 18, the son says, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. You hear the distinction there. He sinned against his father, but first he sinned against God. 
And many take heaven in that passage to be a synonym or a stand-in for, for God himself. I've sinned against God, I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you. You see, that's a good reminder that true repentance, it always begins with God. It's a realization that, that we've broken God's law, that we have offended a holy God. And that we may have hurt others, that's true, there may be work to do there, but it always begins with God and with God first. Notice, secondly, that he possesses a sorrow over his sin, not over his loss. Now, was he sad that he spent all of his money? Probably. Was a growing belly a powerful motivator to move him in a certain direction? I almost imagine, certainly. But he is beat up over his sin. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. These are the words of a penitent heart. Penitent means there's a a sorrow over sin. And thirdly, he does something about that. And this is important because in some circles, an attempt is made to limit repentance to only a change of mind. But a change of mind results in a change of action. That is a fuller, more robust, more accurate biblical definition of sin or repentance. Now, to be sure, it begins with the mind. That's clear enough from the parable. He thinks about his confession. He's going to get up out of this dust. He's going to travel. He's going to go to his father. But at the same time, he actually does it. His response bookends his confession. It comes at the beginning, and it it happens at the end, at the beginning of verse 18. I will get up and go to my father. The beginning of verse 20, so he got up. And he went to his father. It's a great picture, a great instruction on repentance. And this prodigal son, this younger son, is a portrait in many ways of you and of me. This is how we are born. We want what God gives, but we don't want God. There's a natural bent in our hearts for independence, for autonomy, to live apart from God. We want God to uphold our lives, but we want that so we can spend our lives on ourselves. Some will even disavow that such a father would even exist so that they can live in their own world. Every one of us is or was a lost son or a lost daughter And in that lostness, our hearts were were directing us. They were leading us. James chapter 1 verse 14 describes that. James writes that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. You see, within us are these desires that want many things. We saw that in the the prodigal son's life. But here is how you know you've come home. Here is how you know things have changed. It's when you want God. It's when you come to God for God. It's not coming home because of the house It's not coming home for the title. It's not coming home for the land. 
To say it another way, perhaps closer to our world, it's not coming home for the experience. It's not coming to check a box or we're not coming to please mom and dad or to please a spouse or to please a family member. We don't come to faith to receive some kind of healing or to have some kind of special, unique experience. We come for God. It begins with God. So do you want the Lord more than anything else this morning? Have you found all else to be unfulfilling? To be not even a a close second to the Lord? If so, your journey to him is much closer than the sun's. It's a journey from where you are to your knees. It's, It's a prayer that you can make in the quiet of your heart right now from where you sit. Lord, I'm in a distant country. Lord, I need your help. Lord, forgive me for whatever. So how is the father going to respond to this? What's he going to say? We'll pick up in verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Here is a father who loves to forgive the sinner and rejoice over that. This is our second portrait this morning. It's of the father. Do you wonder if he expected to ever see his son again based on the way that son left? That in watching for him, it was some kind of a long shot, perhaps a way to mourn or a way to grieve. It was therapeutic for his own heart just to keep one eye on the horizon. I wonder if he would even recognize him. I bet the sun changed dramatically. Sin does that. It changes us. I bet he didn't look the same. And I bet that day was in the sun's walk. That's how he knew him. We all have that certain stride, that certain way that we walk. If you're a parent, you know it when you see your child walk that way. I bet that's what tipped him off. He knew that that was his son coming over the hill. His heart would have skipped a beat that day. He saw him and felt compassion for him. My, how this father loved his son. He didn't scold him. He didn't rebuke him. He didn't give him what he deserved. This Greek word for compassion is built off a word meaning intestines. It's that deep feeling, that emotion turned physical feeling that we can feel sometimes when we are highly emotional in our bowels. This compassion that he felt, it came with joy. Notice the rapid fire description in verse 20. It's almost a reflex. He saw, he felt, he ran, he embraced, he kissed. He couldn't slow down. He literally fell upon his neck, as the text reads. 
And by the way, all of this defies the social norms of the time. Fathers in their long robes don't get up and run around. They don't, simply don't do these things. And, and notice that the son can hardly confess his sin. He can't finish his rehearsed confession from verse 21. In fact, it's almost like the father isn't even hearing it. In verse 21, the, father, the, the son speaks, but what's the father doing? He's not listening. He's already talking to his slaves in verse 22. It's time for celebration in his mind. Bring out the robe. The guest of honor wears the robe. Bring out the ring that's a, a sign of authority. He's my son again. Give this man sandals. That's the footwear of a, of a child, not a servant. A great celebration is at hand. These fattened calves, that's a very rare meal in this time. Those were saved exclusively for big occasions and huge celebrations. The son received a loving compassion by a joy-filled father. Do you see your heavenly father in this father this morning? God is not a father to everyone, of course. He's a father to those who have believed upon Jesus Christ and are adopted into his family. But the, the point still stands. I mean, God is a compassionate Father. God is a compassionate God. That's what we ought to see here. Psalm 103, verse 13, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Earlier in that psalm, verse 4, God redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. That's a great description of what he's doing for this son and I think at this point in our parable, Jesus has just about answered the grumbling. Remember verse 2. I think right about here, he's sufficiently given a response. He's given two parables, now a third. The complaint back in verse 2, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Everywhere else in the Gospel of Luke, when this word is used, it's either translated as looking for or waiting for. It's almost as though Jesus says, without saying it, that's right. I do receive sinners, I look for them, and I wait for them. That's exactly what God is doing here this morning. He is receiving sinners, he is looking for sinners, and he's waiting for sinners. You don't need to bring anything along. You just come as you are. God will supply you with all, of you need, all that you need in your new life. You don't need to get yourself together. You don't need to be put together, pristine and perfect. God will handle all of that when you come to him. And you don't need to have perfect knowledge of who he is either. You come to him and he will sort all of that out with you. He is ready to come and meet you as you approach, just as his father did with his son. God loves sinners and he rejoices at their repentance. Well, the parable, it could end here. This could be the end of the parable. Jesus has made his point. He's made it sufficiently. But what he's going to do is reinforce this same point and he's going to go a little bit further and speak to the heart of those who are spiritual. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. 
And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we need to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, and was lost and has been found. Some call this the, the parable of the older son. And some will tend to identify more with this son than the prodigal. This portion here, this older son, this last section, it begins with a startling discovery. Perhaps it was the sound of singing and clapping that he heard. Maybe it was the sound of laughing. Maybe it was the smell of roasted meat or that boisterous hum of a party just starting to hit its prime. So the sun comes in from the field. And as an aside, isn't it interesting that he's been in the field the whole time? Some will point to that to show that there's a distance between the son and the rest of the family, already to begin with. You might also have detected some self-righteous remarks that he has made. He's always worked. I mean, that's what godly people do, right? They're always working. Well, to his resentment, he learns of a party for the prodigal. In verse 28, he became angry and he would not attend. What does his father do? He comes out to him, just like he did the younger son. Maybe this is more significant. There's a party taking place, a celebration, and he leaves it to go to the son. He begins to plead with him. He's appealing or imploring or encouraging him. Come in. You have to see your brother. This is amazing. This is no angry father, is it? This is a compassionate father. Compassionate towards the younger son and compassionate towards the older son. But just like this younger son, the older one too, he's going to suffer his own kind of servitude. He's also going to expect some entitlement, and he too is going to disrespect his dad. Now, we need to note that his servitude is self-created. This is his own doing. We know that slavery comes in all kinds of wrappers. It's self-inflicted by the young son. We get that. He went off and he put himself in that position. He fed swine. He chose to blow his own money. But this older son creates his own jail. His protest is based on his relationship, or excuse me, he bases his relationship with his father on work. For many years I've been serving you. One commentator, Leon Morris, makes the observation here that this man did not understand what it meant to be a father, and he didn't know what it meant to be a son. 
as a son, he's not a slave. He should simply serve his father out of love and out of gratitude. The relationship is not hinged or built upon the success in the field. As a father, his dad simply wants to love him. He wants to shower him with compassion. He wants to rejoice over him. The older son made himself a servant. He also expects an entitlement. And we saw that with the younger son already. He demands his share of the estate. We saw a certain entitlement there. But this older son, he's been doing the right things, right? He is entitled to a celebration. I've never neglected a command of yours, he says. That's the sound of pride. That's the sound of a self-righteous man right there. He believes that he's been given some kind of a raw deal. You've never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. That's the sound of arrogance. And he disrespects his dad. And just like the young son, we saw that he wanted his stuff and not his father. Now the older stuff wants his dad's stuff without his father. He wants a celebration, he wants it in his honor, he wants a young goat, and he wants it all with his friends without his father. What he deserves for what he said, he will not get from his father. Because our father is not that way. You have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. We had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. That's the attitude of the Lord toward those who stray, and that's the attitude of the Lord to those who stay. We need to see this older brother and how lost he was. We need to be careful in this parable not to pit the prodigal up against the older one to see one was better than the other. Notice the polish on this older brother. Notice how good he was and how lost he was. The older brother worked hard. He's no sloth. This man is not lazy. He is working hard in the field. He lived virtuously. I mean, this man had no big sins. After all, it's his brother who's with prostitutes. And this older brother, he served consistently. For so many years, he's been serving. He stayed close. He never went to distant places. And he reminds us this morning that a journey away from God has nothing to do with distance. In the words of Warren Wearsby, the distant country exists in our hearts. One son went far, one son stayed near. There aren't people here this morning because they've wandered away from God, and there's people here this morning because they've wandered away from God. If you in any way identify with one of these two sons, this morning I have good news for you. God is a compassionate father. And his son Jesus died for your sins. And whether those sins are like the young son or whether they're like the older son, it does not matter. This loving, compassionate father is willing to receive anyone who comes to him ready for his forgiveness, seeking to repent and turn from those sins. So if you've traveled this morning then, a great distance, even in your heart, God is ready to forgive. In this time, the Jews had a 
particular way of marking sin. It was a ceremony. And it would take place where they'd gather groups or a village together to, to cut off or to sever someone in sin. Some say it could take place for selling off the estate, others for blowing all that money in Gentile land. But a, tr- a group would gather together and take a pot and break it to signify the cutting off and the severing of that sinner from the rest of the people forever. Well, believer, there's no broken pots with God. There's only robes and rings and sandals. These are the things that your father rejoices to reward when you come to him in repentance. If you have strayed in any way today, he's a compassionate father to children who repent and children who return. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for being a God of great compassion. It is difficult to understand and to wrap our finite minds around. I believe our compassion runs out. It's difficult to identify with, yet we believe that this is who you are, and we praise you for who you are. I pray for us this morning that if there be any way in which we've traveled to another country, into some sin or some foreign land in our hearts, that you would bring about a a repentance and you would cause a renewal. Father, I pray that your people would return to you wholeheartedly and see you as a compassionate God ready to celebrate and rejoice over them. I pray, Lord, that for those who do, they would find you, Lord, to be gracious, and they would find you to be forgiving, and they would find you to be the restorative God that you are, just like the father of our story today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.